might be wondering why we're here um, since season three has officially wrapped. We're trying something new, which is exciting. And um, at the end of each season, we are thinking of doing, making this a regular feature and doing a special mention of some people that either mean a lot to our queens or uh, the Tudor dynasty more as a whole, that people that we really, I suppose, admire and want to take the time to delve into a little bit deeper, but don't really get the chance because they don't necessarily fit with our, our story of queenship here. So um, we're going to give it a go. We're going to see what happens and um, we hope you guys like it. I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. And we talked about doing a special about Elizabeth of York for a while because there's some guilt that we feel about calling our show six queens and talking about the six tutor queen consorts and um actively ignoring the fact that there was a seventh tutor queen consort in the form of elizabeth of york so this is kind of our um our redemption for her it's our way to acknowledge her and say yes we know here she is this is also an excuse for Callie to be able to talk about Henry the Seventh, even though oh. I've told her that I will bring out the little <laughs> squirt bottle if she goes too deep. I did bring a special guest for this episode. I did bring my Henry the Seventh mug because he felt fitting. But one of the other reasons we wanted to talk about Elizabeth, not just to, you know, sort of assuage our guilt, is that she is so important to the future queenship of all of her daughters-in-law. Um, and if, if we're talking about origins in this season, I think it's only correct that we mention Elizabeth as sort of the one who originated the role of Tudor queenship. All of the R6 queens kind of look to her, I think, as the example of queenship, the most tangible and recent one that they had, but also almost more importantly, the person who looked to her as a model for queenship was her son, Henry. It's interesting because one of the very, very few positive relationships um, Henry had with a woman is his mother, who invested a lot of time in his education and spent a strange amount of time with him and his two sisters, Margaret and Mary. And we'll come on to that in a little bit more detail um, later uh, on in this episode. It's worth it, too, just to kind of go over some of the details of her life, because she's often mentioned but not explored. Um, and, and then you have she appears more recently in a lot of fiction, like she's the the protagonist of a Philippa Gregory novel. So I think she's kind of been lost time and time again as she's Henry VIII's mom, Henry VII's wife on one end, but then she's this like political girl boss on the other end. And it's like, okay, let's actually sit down and look. So Elizabeth of York, her kind of background um, and kind of upbringing was set against the backdrop of the War of the Roses which we're not going to get too much into lest we get distracted by the, the politics and the male players of that particular episode in history. But needless to say, she was caught up in it. 
Yeah, Elizabeth was actually born a princess. She was born on February 11th, 1466, and she was the eldest child, but then, you know, the oldest daughter of uh, King Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville. And Edward IV was the first York king. He was one who took the throne from the Lancastrian Plantagenet side of the throne, though it flip-flopped a lot. She was regarded as a, a, a princess of England. What I find most interesting about Elizabeth's youth, I think, is that it's so uncertain. Um, I mean, it's like you said, it's set against the Wars of the Roses, and her father is constantly having to prove his claim, whether through politics or even through battle. England is constantly worrying about being invaded by warring factions. You constantly have to worry about, I want to bring this guy to court, but does he want to kill me? And Elizabeth grows up, maybe not participating in this, but being aware of it constantly and knowing that at any moment her life could be in danger simply because of who she was. I mean, the first time we actually see her being used as a political pawn herself is at the age of eight. She um, was using peace negotiations and she was offered to the Earl of Warwick's nephew whilst her father was then forced into exile. That is a lot going on. And it's a constant theme. Who is Elizabeth going to marry? Because while her father is king, he's thinking, how am I going to use her to my best advantage? And you can either marry her to one of your rivals, like a Lancastrian, to make sure that those ties are solid. Or you can marry her to gain international support, because for a while she was actually engaged to the Dauphin of France, the heir to the throne of France. She's being used for her entire life. It is always on the table of who is Elizabeth going to marry. And of course, we know that this comes to a head in 1483 when her father, Edward IV, dies and suddenly there's a lot of drama. Enter Richard III, stage left. <laughs> we can't dwell on this for too long because no. we will. But... <laughs> We're going to try to keep it. We're going to try to keep it brief. The interesting thing to note here is that Richard, once he, you know, comes into the throne, realizes the importance of Elizabeth, like whether or not you think he killed her brothers or not, the, the princes in the tower, he recognizes their importance, right? And Elizabeth definitely is now the eldest child and you know the most politically significant of the girls is important and he needs to keep her close and that being said though in order to take the throne he actually had to make elizabeth and all of her siblings illegitimate so many still regard her as being the princess of england but under richard technically she is not she is illegitimate her parents uh marriage having been called into question the way it's kind of always written about is that this is the thing that kicks Henry VII up the backside and gets him and gets him moving. The fact that um, Richard has announced his kind of intentions to marry Elizabeth. So really, yeah. what he's doing is very, very similar to Richard. He needs Elizabeth to basically bolster his claim and put the final nail in the coffin for him to become King of England. I find all of these rumors with Elizabeth and Richard so interesting for the ways that like certain novelists and like Alison Weir don't find interesting. Um, I don't necessarily think that it was any kind of serious consideration, but the fact that it was rumored so much just goes to show you how important Elizabeth was that Richard III, while his wife was 
you know, sick, but still alive and, you know, threatening incest was actually like people were saying he's going to throw all of that out the window because Elizabeth is so important and he needs her. He needs her claim and her lineage next to him on the throne. There's another story, though, that you get from the humanist Polydor Virgil. He says that there's actually this plot going on behind the scenes at the court of Richard III, wherein Elizabeth Woodville, Elizabeth's mother, and Margaret Beaufort, Henry's mother, are like, we need to figure out a way to undermine Richard. And the perfect way to do that is to unite our branches of the family. So Elizabeth of York marries Henry Tudor. We join the two sides and together they are strong enough to beat Richard. I know Henry VII's claim comes from lots of different places, but in the 1480s, his whole claim, I think, is centered on the fact that he intends to marry Elizabeth. His claim to the throne, at best, is messy. It's a veritable hodgepodge of who slept with who of the early 1400s. So, yeah, who was legitimized? Yeah. Who wasn't? Who's, who's my half brother? Yeah, <laughs> who, who's not related to John of Gaunt? Somebody give me. We're something. all related to John of Gaunt. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he needs her, and I just think if there's two, definitely one woman you don't want to mess with, which is Margaret Beaufort. I think for the love that Elizabeth Woodville had for her children, that's not going to end well for anybody, especially Richard. Henry VII knows that the best way now to kind of kickstart an invasion and push his claim to the throne and get rid of Richard is to have the York royals on his side. So Henry actually makes this pact on Christmas Day in 1483 to marry Elizabeth. He swears in front of witnesses that once he invades England, he will marry her and together they will be, you know, bring about this new glorious dynasty for England. All Both of the branches of the family tree will merge together. I just love, I just love it so much because everything at this point is set, like the stage is set for like them to get everything that they want. But in between 1483 and the August of 1485, there's a hell of a lot that could go wrong. That must have just been a, a, a weird time for her. This guy is about to come over from France and take over. And I, I will be his queen, but not if he doesn't. And then where will I be if he doesn't win the battle? It just She has to be aware of all of this to stay alive. But no one's asking her, you know, like people are making these plans around her and are holding her to some higher status as, you know, the princess of England who's been wronged and we have to go rescue her. She's probably just sitting there, not what, quite wanting to declare for any one camp, lest it all go wrong, you know? I think yeah, I was going to say, I think she's, she's definitely learned that lesson of we, we sit still, we, we kind of watch and we wait for things to come out. It's just so unfortunate that we don't know what Elizabeth was feeling about all of this. Later, we can see that she was interested in stability and picking up the pieces after this civil war and trying to avoid getting into another war. But early on, when she's 19 years old and she's just watched all of this happen to her family, you have to wonder what she was thinking. Uh, we, we don't know, unfortunately, and it's anyone's guess. Again, like you say, like, we don't know, but I think that's a lot of more, like feelings like bubbling around in your head. Yeah, because she must have known how important she was. So, you know, when Henry first takes over the throne, 
he is betrothed to Elizabeth, but there is a delay in when the wedding is going to take place to the point where people are like nudging Henry, like, oh, so are you going to marry the princess now? When's it going to happen? Are you going to do it now? Today? How about now? And Henry keeps putting it off and putting it off. And I think it's because he realized that she, as a figurehead, is so important and so powerful that he wants to solidify his own power first. He wants to be the king. He wants the power to flow through him by divine right of conquest. And suddenly, if you're bringing on this woman as your queen and everyone's saying like, okay, Henry, now you're legit, not a good look for him. I th- far be it for me to be disparaging about Henry VII in any way whatsoever, but I, I think there's another side to it as well. He needed to kind of solidify his own power for himself, but he also needed the paperwork to be right, I think, in a sense. And what I mean by paperwork is that technically the two of them were related. So Henry needed papal dispensation for him and Elizabeth to marry normally to get papal, a papal dispensation to go all the way to Rome and to get the Pope to say, yes, this is all fine. It takes a minute. But there is a papal legate that happens to be in England in the January of 1486. And he and Henry is actually able to persuade the papal legate to authorise the marriage. And the two were actually married two days later on January 18, 1486. The other um, kind of scandalous thing around their marriage, too, is there's um, there's a popular theory running around the Internet and through some some books that Henry also wanted to make sure that Elizabeth wasn't only a really good political figurehead for him to marry, but also that she would further the dynasty because as the head of a new dynasty, your primary concern is making more people. So there seems to be a theory that he and Elizabeth actually consummated their marriage before the actual marriage ceremony, which was a thing. People did do that. After a formal betrothal, you were considered free to do whatever you wanted. You could consider yourselves married, technically. People think that Henry might have been testing Elizabeth to some extent to see if this was a worthy investment in more ways than one. And the reason for that thinking is that their first child, Prince Arthur, is actually born eight months after the wedding. Of course, it's entirely possible that it could have just been an early birth because that happens. But you know how people get with all this stuff. It's like if we don't know and we have these tantalizing bits of information, people just go crazy. You know, Philip McGregor. <laughs> Once Arthur is born, though, Elizabeth kind of fulfills her role. I mean, it, it's it's sad and reductive to say, but you, you've been here long enough probably that you know what we mean when we say this. She not only is henry's wife and queen now but she's the mother of the heir and that just that completely solidifies her role to the point where henry goes ahead with her coronation as queen her official investiture as queen and finally we are acknowledging her great role in this in this new administration and this dynasty but this has also sparked some really interesting debate though amongst historians because there's kind of like a view that there's a contention of who needed who more whether it was Elizabeth who needed Henry more to get her place rightfully as queen, or whether Henry needed Elizabeth more to give his reign the stamp of legitimacy. I think I think in this instance, Henry's very much of the opinion that Elizabeth needed him more, and that this is her reward. To be, uh, to be, be, be crown, officially crowned queen is her reward for doing her job and 
ticking all of those boxes. She she is a lot of what his claim is, and also his children now. His heir, Prince Arthur, is the white and the red roses combined, and there's power in that association, right, that Henry is aware of and plays up to the utmost degree. What I really enjoy seeing out of all of this with Arthur's birth and Elizabeth being crowned before her actual coronation, so I'm going to backtrack a little bit, and it's to do with Arthur. Firstly, his name. Secondly, Elizabeth chose to do her confinement at Winchester. Now, there's a fun little fact about Winchester, rooted in myth, that it was actually potentially one of the locations that Camelot could have possibly been. There's this whole kind of big Tudor propaganda, whatever you want to call it, theatricalization of the Tudor monarchy in the embodiment of Arthur, that he's effectively one of the Knights of the Round Table. and he's Arthur, come again. Thank you. That is what I was trying to say. You have to ask, though, how much of her was in that decision, though. Uh, I, I mean, yeah. we don't know. It's up for debate. Obviously, you know, Henry and all of, you know, his descendants later are masters at propaganda and this this screams tutor. But Elizabeth, too, I think, once she had married Henry and had his child, was firmly on that team and was a team player. So you have to wonder how much she went along with this. Like, was she when Henry said, hey, honey, I want you to do your confinement at Winchester so we can pretend that our child is King Arthur. Was she rolling her eyes or was she like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. You know, we, we just we don't know. Elizabeth officially became Queen of England after her coronation on November 25th, 1587. And here, I think we can really start to talk about her, quote, origins as the first Tudor queen, because this is when she actually has the freedom to start making the role her own. And like we said in the beginning, this is nothing too groundbreaking because she was following the example of like her mother and this kind of standard for medieval queenship that's handed down. But Elizabeth was the first queen of a new dynasty. She's the mother of a new dynasty. So she has to take that into consideration in raising her children, but also creating this role for herself. And this is where we see a lot of her her influence start to build on her husband and her later son, Henry VIII, as this is the ideal queen. This is this is what every woman should aspire to be when she becomes the Queen of England. One of the big ways she did that very, very early on, and she did this with Arthur, is she had a lot of influence over his education. And she ended up having a lot of influence over Henry's education as well. Because Henry VII knew nothing of this. This is something he's completely out of his depth with. He He can't he can't form an opinion. He's not had a royal education in the same way that Elizabeth has and the education she would have seen her brothers having as well. So she could really shape them here. And she, with Arthur, I think she does that, you know, he has a very classical education and one that you'd expect for an heir. But with Henry, she had a bit more opportunity to kind of play and with his education and tailor it to him and his interests. Because there's always this idea, especially in Tracy Borman's uh, work, that 
he's very much he's got the energy of the the Yorkists and he's got that kind of fight that Yorkist fire so I think Elizabeth kind of works with that and finds some tutors that work for him you definitely get the impression through all that she does for him that her son Henry is her favorite child um I think they they have a bond that Elizabeth doesn't really have with the others and I think you would you would inherently think that she would be closest to her daughters just because their experiences are so similar and because it's more traditional for the queen to have influence over her daughters and supervise their educations. But Elizabeth seems to have spent a lot of time in the country when she wasn't needed at court in London. And a lot of the time she was spending with her children there, Henry was also there. You know, he wasn't first in line to the throne. His, his education isn't as important. So like you said, Elizabeth could really get to know him and take an interest in him. And maybe it's true that he did remind her of her father or the brothers that she lost. And she thought this is something special to nurture. And because of this, you see this kind of unwavering devotion to her that lasts throughout Henry VIII's life. Later in life, I think we just see him have such negative relationships with women or they never reach that ideal of his his mother and they never quite fit it and because he had the chance to be so close to her and see her so often he was also exposed to her queenship this is i think something that's been debated a lot because the tudor court under henry the seventh technically has two queens elizabeth is the queen in name and she is the wife of henry the seventh and the mother of all of his heirs but you also have my lady the king's mother margaret beaufort who takes on more of the kind of political role of the queen that we've come to see you know in knowing our our six queens we we know that women weren't as passive as chroniclers have made them seem like they were actively involved in administration but in the case of Henry VII's court, it seems to have been split between the two women so that Margaret Beaufort was the one who was actively advising Henry and taking an interest in what was going on in the political world, whereas Elizabeth was the kind of mother of the court and she was the one who was keeping up appearances. Um, she was deeply interested in charity, for example. She gave a ton of money to monasteries and did all sorts of charitable works and that's the kind of divide that you you see. I think we're more used to the queens as people who, you know, exert that soft power and are actively interested in what's happening in the country. And it's not to say Elizabeth didn't, but I think where she carved out a more memorable role for herself is as the consort, the the one who is the beautiful woman at the side of the king. One of the ways that that really comes out, and it's a, and it's a sad way that it does come out, is that her fulfilling that role as a consort of the king is following Arthur's death. Henry the Seventh is absolutely beside himself, as any parent would be. He he asks for he asks for Elizabeth, um, so that they could share their sorrow together, and that she has to go and comfort him and remind him that. They still have other children. They still got Henry and Mary and Margaret. Uh, they were both still very, very young. You know, they still had time to produce new heirs and things like that. And she literally had to hold him up, I think, and, and support him in public 
and she does that beautifully like heartbreakingly beautifully well and there's reports of her you know being henry shoulder to crown being being the the public face of the queen and the queen consort and then her going back to her own rooms and just being absolutely devastated and just weeping and being allowed to be a mother i think that influenced both henry the seventh and henry the eighth in what they look for because i think when henry the seventh is shopping around for you know spouses for for his son arthur and thinking okay who who are we going to get to be the next queen of england he must have modeled his expectations off of his wife they were partners in that sense they were the the mom and dad of the tudor dynasty and of the court so i think he was looking for a similar companionship but also figurehead like we've been saying for his own son to carry on the dynasty in Catherine of Aragon and then in turn that goes to Henry VIII who when we see his requirements later for who who do I want to marry who is my ideal spouse the women who have the most success are the ones who emulate Elizabeth of York the most and I think it's just without making it too Freudian I think that's Henry's example of what a queen of England should be and what a good wife should be. It's somebody who understands that she is there to support the king almost at the expense of herself as a human being. You you get that sense. Like, even if you look at his relationship with uh, Henry VIII's relationship with Catherine of Aragon, the first 10, 12 years of their marriage, they they are partners in what they do and they, they kind of support each other. It's only when she starts not giving him what he wants he then starts to pull away and we start to see that the Henry that history remembers. Elizabeth too, I think, played an important role in shaping what we understand of the Tudors as an institution. Like we said in, in part one, we don't know early on how invested she was in making the Tudors this really cool dynasty and, you know, pretending that we're the new Camelot and everything. But I think she becomes more invested in it as time goes on. Like we said, she and Henry VII were very much partners in that sense. They were united in that sense for their, on behalf of their children, if nothing else. So you see Elizabeth really invested in trying to repair the country after civil war. Uh, she arranges all of these marriages that are meant to uh, knit the warring sides together, just as her own marriage did, right? You know, she's not above this either, but she arranges all of these marriages between Yorkists on her end and Lancastrians to try to say, okay, we're all working together now. And under this court, you know, through my, my claim to the throne and my father and my father's blood in the veins of my children, we can all be united and everything is good again. And she becomes really well loved, I think, because of this, because she kind of straddles both sides. I mean, Henry did it politically in terms of the people that he kind of kept around him and the nobility that he kept around him but that that wasn't enough um like you said you you know you need those kind of marriage alliances as well but go along with it but what i find fascinating here is when there was a bit of a scandal kind of rocking the boat in around 1487 with lambert simnel with the, the yorkist siding with him and well some of the yorkist siding with him and you know being crowned um king in Ireland, Elizabeth is stressed by all accounts that she now needs to give Henry another heir. I think this is where the kind of civil war thinking comes out. She's the wife of a Lancastrian king. 
and she can't be seen to be kind of having any association with what her family are doing. She almost has to kind of put her face over her, like her hand over her face and be like, I'm not, I'm not talking to you. I don't know you. Let's have another child. It's certainly a test of her loyalties. Um, it's like you said, it's 100%. The, the civil war threatening to come out. And now we're testing you to see, you know, are you, are you still loyal to who you were as a, as a child or are we, are we in this together? And from all accounts, they are in this together. Elizabeth, of course, we don't, we don't know for sure because unfortunately we don't have a lot of what she was actually going through or thinking, but by all accounts, the king and queen were united. And I don't want to go as far as saying that there was, I think there was definitely a form of love. It just, we can't say for sure, but they, they were a strong couple and Henry clearly had a lot of respect for her and not just her position, but her, when that loyalty is tested, I think Elizabeth stands firmly by his side and he, he does love her for it i just hesitate to say love because we don't know for sure like we don't have her diary i don't know i I, i'd go i i'd put my money on that being like kind of romantic love between them it may not have started out that way but you know um like i said at the start they, they spent 20 years of their lives together they had seven children by all accounts you know they they spent a lot of time together like both publicly and privately so I, yeah, I, I fall on the side of love, but I just think that is the, um, the, the Tudor court, like courtly love romantic coming out in me. <laughs> you can also see how strong their family was. Like we, like you said, Elizabeth and Henry had seven children together. Uh, four of them survived childhood, uh, but two died quite young. Um, their son Edmund was about over a little over a year when he died. And then their daughter Elizabeth was three when she died. And both parents were distraught at the death. And I mean, now, of course, they, we would think, of course, you're, you're upset at the death of your child. But it wasn't just like the, the loss of an heir kind of mentality. They did seem to be genuine, genuinely rocked by the idea of this loss within their family, which yeah, it shows that they were together and they were they were trying to create this idyllic family life for themselves. People forget that they had seven children. You know, the the last of them being Catherine, who died literally a couple of days after she was born and then was very quickly followed suit by um by Elizabeth herself. But we we do focus on the the, the surviving children because that's that's who we know most about. Elizabeth's role as a mother, too, I think is important to highlight. We're kind of uh, getting you geared up for next series here for when we talk about motherhood. But I wonder what that could be. <laughs> oh, we, we talked about how much influence she had on her son, Henry. But I think it's also worth noting how much influence she had on all of her children. And one of the ways in which this is apparent is through um, the, the negotiations of marriages. So she took an active role in getting Catherine of Aragon over to England uh, not to say that, you know, Henry VII and Margaret Beaufort weren't the architects of that, but Elizabeth had a lot to do with it. And she bonded with Catherine once Catherine of Aragon came to England. Like she was very interested in investing in Catherine as her daughter-in-law, but then also for her daughters. So she, um, Mary, the youngest of the Tudor children was, was too young to for marriage negotiations to be taking place really seriously. But she did arrange a marriage for her older daughter, Margaret, 
to the King of Scotland. And where this becomes interesting is that, yes, this was a political marriage intended to strengthen the bond between England and Scotland and prevent more wars from happening because you know that worked well. Elizabeth actually persuaded Henry and Margaret Beaufort too, but you know, Elizabeth definitely to a certain extent persuaded Henry to delay the marriage until Margaret was older so that Margaret wouldn't have to leave home so young. And I think that shows the, the humanity and the, the motherly love in Elizabeth that you don't necessarily see all the time with royal children. I wonder how much of that is based on how she was used as a political pawn and, you know, from the age of eight, as we mentioned earlier, um, and how that affected her and whether or not she wanted her children to go through the same thing. Because like you said, she's very protective of her children and wanted to kind of do the right thing for them. And like you said, that's what makes her special. And that's what makes her into this almost mythic figure for her children, um, especially for her son, Henry. We need to uphold the ideals of this woman. We need to follow her example in all in all things. And we've been building to it, but I think the best place to see her legacy on her family is upon her death. So Elizabeth was pregnant with her final child who ended up being a girl named Catherine. And by all accounts, like Tracy Borman talks about this, the, the baby came early and Elizabeth had a few difficult pregnancies already. So I think her body was just not handling this this birth well and she ended up becoming very ill after the birth probably with uh, an infection as is so typical so not only was the baby weak and and died shortly after birth but elizabeth also died following the birth uh, a couple of weeks later in a weird twist of fate it actually is on her birthday on her 37th birthday in 1503 this is important, I think, in building this image of her as kind of the mythic Tudor queen because she dies young in the same way that Jane Seymour later is revered as this person who gave sacrifice for the Tudors and who takes on this role as this idyllic woman because her life was cut short. So too, this happens to Elizabeth. And I think nowhere is that more evident than the uh, the Whitehall mural, right? Yeah, Henry is holding up his mom as the the idyllic queen, the woman who is furthering the dynasty. But um, I mean, too, when you talk about the emotional responses to her death, it's easy to see how that isn't just a Tudor PR thing. That's actually a deep emotional sentiment from Henry. There's this wonderful, well, I say wonderful. It's a great image, but I mean, what it means isn't great. There's this image in an illuminated manuscript from Henry VII's reign that shows the aftermath of Elizabeth's death, where um, Henry VIII is shown with his two sisters, Margaret and Mary. And Margaret and Mary are wearing black hoods for mourning. And then their brother, Henry, is in the background, and he's actually sobbing like you we can't see his face because his face is covered and he's like laying on a bed and just sobbing mourning the death of his mother it does break your heart a little bit i think when you see it because you don't you're not used to that side of henry the eighth it also reminds us that as you remind me so often henry the seventh has a reputation now for being this very cold emotionless person but that really only takes root after Elizabeth dies. Um, because when Elizabeth dies, I think the shock of it is so 
overwhelming to Henry that he doesn't come out of his room for like months. He, I mean, and he's eventually ill, but like following Elizabeth's death, he doesn't want to see anyone besides his mother. He doesn't want to do anything. He just wants to mourn his wife. He is completely distraught. And that's when you start to see him remove himself from emotional things. So you have to wonder just how much of him as a man, like a human, was lost when his wife died. So it could be worse, but he was a fun person. Like, isn't like he, he, like, I'm fun, okay? Like, right? Can I go to his house for a party? <laughs> Woo! Um, no, but he was a fun person. He was a, like a life loving person, I think. You know, he liked to entertain, he liked to be entertained. You know, he liked to go like sponsored joust, uh, play cards and things like that. You know, he wasn't the Scrooge McDuck figure that would just sit in his room, like counting money and counting coins and being very robotic. Like you said, like how much of him is wrapped, like how much of him as a man is wrapped up in her. I think it's fair to say a great deal. I think he probably learned, you know, from her, the love that she had for their children and, you know, her, her piety and her everything like that. And, you know, that is all just taken away from her and he is left broken. I feel like you're going to cry now. I just, you just can't help it. I guess where I see her biggest legacy, though, is in her son and her son's views of not only, like, queenship, but what a wife should be, what a woman should be, like, what the, the perfect ideal woman would be like. And perhaps seeing his parents have such a firm partnership, but then also to what extent we can say a loving marriage to the point where his father becomes almost a new person upon the death of this woman who's meant so much to him. I think that's all what Henry wanted for himself. Um, when we see him, he becomes such a romantic when he's an adult, good Lord, that you have to wonder how much of that is because he had this example of what a king and a queen should look like in the form of his parents and especially his mother. Yeah, like you said, in the reason that the the Whitehall mural exists, which, um, you know, I think we've shared it before, but it's this dynastic painting of Henry showing how he's continuing the Tudor dynasty and actually how he's even better than his father was. But you see Henry VII and Elizabeth of York there, and then you see Henry VIII and Jane Seymour there. And while Jane Seymour is probably there because she is the mother of Henry's heir and therefore she's furthering the Tudor dynasty, I think Jane comes the closest to emulating an Elizabeth of York figure and them standing there side by side together. Elizabeth and Jane just shows how Henry came to view queenship. The ideal queen is not only a woman who gives birth to the male heir, but is the person who is pious and, you know, does a lot for charity, who knows her place and will give me counsel and advice and comfort, but won't step over the line. You know, we know Jane tried, but we know that she firmly stepped back later. And that's, that's, that's Elizabeth. That's, he's getting that because he was so close to and loved his mother so much and then saw how the effect that she had on his father. So I think I think that 
about wraps us up for our first special that we are trying out um make sure you guys leave a, a, a comment on our socials you know twitter instagram facebook anything like that let us know what you think let us know if you want more of these because we have got a list we have oh, got yeah. a list that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger um about the kinds of specials that we want to do and i think these are so fun any excuse we can get to talk about the women around our six queens who influenced them in ways that might not be like directly tangible we will take it so like we said we have a whole list of people we could give honorable mentions to um just let us know if that's something that you're interested in otherwise we will see you periodically throughout the the spring and the summer we have a couple of specials planned we're um definitely doing one in may but we'll probably do some other ones too as we kind of think of them like maybe we'll review some more shows or books or something but otherwise um we will come at you later probably in the summer for the release date for series four motherhood and we are really looking forward to that we already pretty much have it planned out so stay excited yeah stay tuned stay tuned for that uh so not goodbye but see you later fairly well au revoir (laughs) 